Ke pasa mufasa. Ni hao, shalom, salam, aleikum, habibis and amigos. My friends, what's up? Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. We've got another heavy hitter in the house today, one of the world's foremost academic authorities on the subject of psychedelics and how they influence perception. Brain science, son. We've got celebrated academic and acclaimed journalist Zeus Tapato in the house today. I'm focusing on the perceptual aspects of psychedelics. I mean, we all have to understand that we all took psychedelics, at least I did and all my other friends, we took psychedelics not because we had, you know, depression we wanted to fix. We took psychedelics because we wanted to see some crazy stuff on a Friday night in our friend's basement. This one was a blast. I aspired to have more members of the European and international psychedelic research community join me here on the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by MicroBoost, purveyors of fruiting body functional mushroom extracts that I personally use on a daily basis and have been for about four months now. Mm. You hear that? That's me sipping MicroBoost functional mushroom coffee. This podcast is also brought to you by Inoculate the World, the premier one-stop shop for exotic mushroom spores and cultivation equipment. You need some super fire cubensis spores to study under a microscope? I got you, fam. Head over to inoculatetheworld.com. And finally, thank you to Usia Labs, O-U-S-I-A Labs, manufacturers of home extraction equipment, including the new tabletop CO2 extractor, the Usia Fountain. That's for home extraction of natural pure flavors and essences. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Okay, pasa mufasa ni hao. Salam alaikum, shalom, what's up everybody? We've got Zeus Tapado, the one and only psychedelic researcher extraordinaire and neuroscientist in the house today. He's currently studying DMT in the brain. You heard, what's up Zeus? How's it going in the Netherlands today? What's up, dude? How are you today, man? Holland all the way to what? California is where you're at or what? Yeah, I'm a Californian by trade, but I'm down in Chiapas, Mexico at the moment. And we just tapped in in Denver last week, right? And it was quite an extraordinary spectacle. I'm glad I got to hang out with you for a minute at the Tendava after party. So that was great. So first things first, Zeus. I know you get a lot of products that people are offering you. They want you to bioassay or to sample their products. And I saw that you came up on a rather unique piece of paraphernalia there, and that's a 2CB vape pen. That's definitely the first time I've heard of that. I've seen the DMT vape pens. I've seen even psilocybin vape pens. Certainly haven't seen a 2CB vape pen. What's the down low on that? Have you had a chance to try it out yet? Dude, so yeah, the 2CB vape pen, it's been sort of this ancient thing that I've sort of heard about this like, hidden secret artifact and and i've heard that it actually existed back when i was in harlem uh back in like december or november i think it was for icpr and i heard somebody talking about it i'm like really a 2cb vape and they're like yeah man somebody's you know putting it together i'm like okay whatever bro whatever bro and then the same person I see him in Colorado and he's like, bro, here you go. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you actually did it. And yeah, man, it's a 2CB disposable vape pen. So they really aren't that conscious about the environment, which I guess is maybe fine for them. But uh, I did have a chance to try it and to taste it. Uh, I can tell you this, man, it definitely tastes like it has a sort of candy-esque taste. They definitely added something to that. But the actual experience is quite profoundly a 2CB experience. I mean, it has a very distinct psychedelic feel to it. The taste was super interesting, almost like they put something in there to sort of overcome that very like chemically taste of 2CB. Uh, but it was effective, and I had an experience. I'm assuming it's 2CB, but it could be something else. However, I believe it to be 2CB. Right on. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. You know, the first time I saw a psilocybin vape pen, I remember all of these old thoughts just bubbling up. Like, I thought that you couldn't vape or smoke psilocybin and it would break down the old, like, Don Juan bit, you know, here, you know, reading about smoking mushrooms. And I've tried that years ago. And then people were like, no, nah, it just breaks down. So 
that's one of the most fascinating things to me about the underground market is you have all these whizzes and engineers who are creating these incredible products that are, like you said, quite mythical. Like you hear about them and then finally come across them. So that's pretty cool that you get to give that one a, a spin. And I would definitely be interested if anybody listening to this podcast has the, the plug on that. So how was psychedelic science for you? Because that was just a massive mega convention. I don't know where to start. I've been trying to unpack it. There were so many different dimensions and angles to it. I personally love the networking aspect of events like this, and it came through on all fronts on that accord, just getting to meet so many people. Of course, the panels and the programming was just incredibly curated, so diverse, so expansive from all over the planet. How was your experience at Psychedelic Science, Zeus? Bro, listen, man, I've been to a bunch of these like conferences, these events. I've been to France. Monaco, like everywhere, checking out these psychedelic events and conferences. And I got to say, man, that was the best conference I've ever been to in my entire life when it comes to actual psychedelic field. Incredible presence. Lots of people. I think what 12,000 people were there. The quality of the actual conference itself was fantastic. Uh, it was a big conference, but things seemed to be relatively like well taken care of organized and the people there i mean you had every single spectrum of the entire field you had the scientists you had the artists the comedians the hosts you had the journalists the indigenous community it was it was such a cool sort of place to all come together i but i do want to say that i wish the psychedelic science was a little bit more prevalent in the actual conference itself you had all of these fantastic posters hidden way in the back of the entire conference where you had to really search for them. And these posters were from like incredible people. Parker Singleton, uh, Pablo, Mauro Cavara, all these guys that have just put together amazing science, incredible data, and it was all buried in the back. And I'm like, no, that should be in the front. When you walk in, there should be posters and there should be, you know, presence there. So that's my only critique. But everything else was fantastic. The panels were great. Uh, it was honestly, it was so big that I saw people once and I couldn't find them ever again during the entire conference. And it sucked because I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to hang out with them. But that just really shows you that the sort of, you know, the gargantuan aspect of this you know, conference was fantastic. So thumbs up. Maps did a good job, man. They absolutely crushed it. I got to give them that, man. They crushed the conference for sure. I totally concur. I especially appreciated having the pop culture track, you know, and yes, the science was hidden a little bit and I checked out those posters and was able to hear a few exhibitors talking about, you know, for example, like the adverse experiences that may happen to some people on psychedelics, like really valid, valuable insights. But for me, the pop culture element is so huge because I've been to a number of these conferences like Horizons, Wonderland is a little bit more industry focused, uh, breaking convention, et cetera, et cetera. And I've always felt like pop culture is this dragnet that's going to bring so many people into psychedelics and seeing like the Good Trip Studios team produce a show with the flaming lips. Like for me, that's my wheelhouse and it gets me really excited, you know, and like getting to be a part of that, getting to see some of these other people like Huberman come in who maybe traditionally isn't really a psychedelic researcher. And I know that there was some critique around that, but I also love the idea that like, this is a person with a huge trusted platform that is coming in to learn and to meet people and to be open. And I think that's, what's going to kind of push everything forward is the intersectionality of the psychedelic field. And I think the conference nailed that to a T and there's always room for improvement. You know, there's always room for improvement and for evolution and for bringing more valuable perspectives from all over. So one of the things that you're doing right now, which I'm super interested to tap in with you about is research on DMT and the brain. I believe that's maybe your specific area of focus right now at Maastricht where you're a PhD candidate, I believe, and you're crowdsourcing people's experiences of DMT and visualizations or hallucinations. I don't know if that's the correct word, but what is the aim of this study? What's the overarching goal of this study and how far along are you in the process? Yeah, man. So it's been fantastic and it's a very complicated topic. So this project that I'm working on, it'll be done at about the end of 2026. So it's big. It isn't going to happen the end of this year. It's, it's a big sort of thing. So I'm doing all of these different projects and experiments that sort of um, combine to be this 
very interesting, thorough, in-depth look at DMT's effects on the brain, specifically the, the uh, visual cortex, which is the back of the brain. But specifically, I really want to understand the visual DMT experience and why there are very distinct things in this DMT uh, sort of um, experience that every person has. You know, it seems like you talk to a person, they do DMT, and they have very distinct things that happen to them. But then if you talk to someone else, they're like, yeah, that happened to me too. That happened to me too. And it's curious that we all, or at least it appears that we all have this relatively same or similar experience when it comes to DMT. Now, you talk to a person that, you know, perhaps they believe that, oh, well, we have this similar experience because there is a DMT hyperspace and DMT opens up a portal in the brain and the brain and we see aliens and we talk to aliens and we could experience these multidimensional levels of reality and existence. To that, I say, bruh, okay, take it easy, relax. This is not some freaking film, some like sci-fi film from like 2008. This is a powerful substance that you take. And perhaps the reason why we have a very similar experience is because despite our vast cultural and ethnic um, differences, we have relatively the same thing in our head, the same brain, the same functionality of the brain. So that should really give us a sort of, you know, a sort of good um, understanding of who we are as a people, as a group of people. Um, like, for example, like if you give a person a piece of cake, they could be from India or Indiana, and they're going to say this cake is freaking, you know, tasty, or it's like sweet, you know, or it's whatever. And that's the reason, the reason why is because we have similar taste buds, and we, we sort of experience taste the same. So perhaps it is that DMT has a very distinct, I want to say, brain system connectivity that allows us to experience a similar visual reaction like how we experience sour if we eat a sour apple, you know, if we eat a sweet piece of cake. And that's what I'm really um, looking at are these correlates that we could, we could sort of uh, find when we apply things like the bold signal, which is uh, blood oxygen level dependent uh, ways to look at the brain to see how the blood shifts in the brain whenever we do a DMT and to see if that can be replicated with things like VR, with things like, you know, experiencing extended reality or virtual reality. If we could have a DMT experience be somewhat virtualized or maybe all the way virtualized. So. Um, so there's a lot of things that I'm after. I can't really talk about a, you know, a bunch about it right now because I'm under all these NDAs, but I can tell you that that's the sort of aim of the entire project and that the project will ultimately be done in 2026. And I cannot wait to share everything with you guys. But of course, I'll be putting out papers. I'll be putting out papers here, papers there towards the you know, completion of the project. So you'll understand what I'm doing uh, relatively soon. Actually, the first paper's coming out around September, so check that out. You know, I had a couple of breakthrough DMT experiences in 2007, and I really haven't gone back to that plane since then. I've done a lot of mushrooms and various other things since then, but uh, two of the very interesting visual distortions, I'll call them, that happened to me were beyond just the actual trip. It was actually on the way back. I had an out-of-body experience, and I'm still unpacking what happened there. I remember it being very familiar is the most surprising thing of like, oh shit, I know this space. I've been here before. But coming back, I was surrounded by a circle of my friends. It just felt like, I don't know, like an 18 year old college student, cool thing to do, like create a safe container where your friends sit around you. And one of my friends, I saw a, a copy of him. So it was him and then half of him was sitting next to him. And it was like a very real visual distortion. So it wasn't like, you know, seeing the entities or the elves or anything. It was like an actual visual distortion of seeing a friend and then an exact copy of him, but only half of the body. So that was one really unique angle. And then another one was I could control my vision, like tint on the vision, like I could blow it out. And just like I was controlling the tint on a television. And you know, those experiences, as well as many of my other early psychedelic experiences for many of us, 
It just leads to this open-ended inquiry where you say, what was that? Like, how does my brain work? Why did that substance that I came across have such a profound impact on the way that I perceive things? And it's crazy that, you know, what, uh, 15 years later or so that we actually have uh, professionals who are studying this, who are doing the due diligence, and it's about time. So that segues into my next question, which is, I'd love for you to dive into a little bit your perspectives on the psychedelic science aspect, not the conference, but the actual research and science. Because over here in the US where I'm from, we have a tendency, as you may have noticed, to get carried away with the hype, with the prospective potential. People see dollar signs, you have various opportunists coming in. It's not to negate that there's really good science being done, but sometimes it gets diluted a little bit in this sort of push towards trying to monopolize or legalize or control or medicalize substances. And I know that there's been a fair amount of unsettled research or unsettled science and people making certain claims about certain things. And there's been a lot of criticism against that. And I also know over in Europe, in my experience, I, I encountered a lot more skeptics, a lot more like sober scientists, right? And people who aren't necessarily on the board of a company who are also, you know, a scientist or whatever. So what is your perspective on the state of actual scientific research? And for example, in Australia, I know that there's been some clap back against, you know, descheduling MDMA and psilocybin. Of course, many people think it's a great thing, but there's also people legitimately who are criticizing it. And I think both of us are unabashed psychedelic enthusiasts. But we also want good research and good data. So what's your perspective on the whole psychedelic research community right now? Yeah, man. So I got to actually give you props because you do a really good job at the sort of typical psych bro, if that's even called that, if that's something. But you do a really good uh, job at putting it out. It's, it's funny. It's like hilarious. So props, props to you. Uh, but I do want to say that, yeah, man, it's it's. And, and, I, and I'm so happy that you said that there's a difference between America and Europe because in America, there, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, the pathway of psychedelics in America. And it seems like the pathway of psychedelics in America is wholly, almost entirely focused on how psychedelics can help with things like ADHD, depression, uh, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, all this stuff. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that the goal? Um, could it be that we've tried everything else in America? We've tried, you know, prescriptions, we tried religion, we've tried philosophy, and they've all sort of failed us. And the final sort of the final thing we have are the same thing that was that's been outlawed for decades, you know, that that, that that's been sort of made infamous by politicians. Now this is the quote unquote solution of these problems that we all face in America. And really it's a, it's a sign of a desperate society clinging on something to solve these problems that are really deep rooted problems that to be honest with you, psychedelics really aren't going to solve. I mean, it could help, but it's not going to solve like, you know, um, generational uh, trauma, or it's not going to solve, you know, the, the core of addiction. It, it, it could help. It could have, you know, um, let us sort of escape or get away from it for a bit. Yeah, there's evidence that the, uh, you know, um, antidepressive effects of psychedelics are very persistent. So you take one big dose and you have relatively positive aspects for days, weeks, months, after the you know actual experience but after that you're still stuck with what you had before so i see that in america that's the pursuit you know all the cash is going towards these companies yeah we're going to solve depression bro we're going to solve ptsd we're going to solve addiction drop some cash here give us and then of course these companies they're relying on the science to back their claims and the science really is like ah, i don't know you know maybe maybe not and of course, these companies that are just relying on back, you know, all this sort of science to come out, it's not really coming out how they expect. And they're like losing capital. They're like losing funds. They're going out of business. I mean, you've seen these companies rise and all of a sudden they've like failed. They've like gone away. And that's going to continue to happen within psychedelics because I believe the future of psychedelics, perhaps there's a future of, of uh, psychedelics in Things like, you know, antidepressants, for sure. That there's, there's a lot of good evidence that shows that there's potential of psychedelics to help with things like 
treatment-resistant depression, all that stuff. But, Dennis, there's an entire other field that I am, I, if you want to call it that I'm pioneering, I will take it. I'm focusing on the perceptual aspects of psychedelics. I mean, we all have to understand that we all took psychedelics, at least I did, and all my other friends, we took psychedelics not because we had, you know, depression we wanted to fix. We took psychedelics because we wanted to see some crazy stuff on a Friday night in our friend's basement. That's why we took it. So we cannot get away from this very innate fact that is within all of us. So as far as psychedelics, and, and here's where I go over to, you know, over out here, Holland, uh, Switzerland, um, Leiden, all of these places in Europe that are focusing, yes, a little bit on, you know, all the other stuff, but they're focusing on the perceptual stuff. Katrin Prelu, for example, fantastic scientist. She's focusing on a lot of stuff, but she also focuses on the perceptual aspects of psychedelics. What can we learn from 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 the absolute undeniable um, alterations to our perspective? Like, I don't care if you are a billionaire or if you're whatever. If you take two hits of you know um, LSD on a Tuesday. You're going to see some wild stuff. That's undeniable. And in science, we do not have a convincing explanation as to why this happens in the brain. We have some theories, some really good theories that are pretty you know, interesting, pretty compelling. But we have three theories. They're all sort of out there. We do not have a clear understanding of why a person can take a piece of paper and then have their entire perception altered. That right there is tremendous because it shows that it goes beyond receptors that are floating in the head. It causes an entire cascade of other actions in the brain to, to you know, have us believe that this orange sofa is actually an orange elephant or something, you know? Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm you know, focused on. I'm focused on the actual perceptual alterations and why our brain is so susceptible to psychedelics. There's only one other thing that I can find on this planet that our brain is so susceptible to when it comes to perceptual alterations, and that is VR. When it comes to a person being like, you know, sort of immersed in VR, it, it's easy to like trick our brains into thinking that what we're seeing within VR is actually real. You've seen videos of people with the um, headsets on that they're like, oh my gosh, they like run towards the wall and they smash their heads or they're trying to fight somebody. That is because our brains are being quote unquote tricked into thinking that what we're seeing is true. Just like how psychedelics tricks our brain into believing that what we're seeing is actually true. And if you go a little bit further with something like DMT, our eyes can be open or closed. We're still seeing whatever DMT has for us, which is very, very interesting. And the fact that we do not have an actual explanation to that is remarkable. And that's the reason why I'm focusing all my time on it. Now, I also want to say, as far as Australia, what you talked about, how they just legalize, they're legalizing everything. They're like, hey, let's just do it. Boom, psilocybin, MDMA, hey, let's do it. I mean, look, man. I'm all for the legalization of drugs that Carl Hart tip. That dude's like, let's legalize everything. But I think to legalize substances like MDMA and psilocybin under the guise that it's going to help with your depression or help with these maladaptive behaviors that people have, I think we should... Put the brakes on that because first off, we don't truly understand why it's happening in the brain. There was a paper that was released very recently that showed this other receptor called TRKB, not serotonin, but TRKB actually could be the sort of uh, aspect into the antidepressant effects of psychedelics. That just happened about three or four weeks ago. So the fact that we don't have a clear understanding of how these things work should tell us that maybe we should pump the brakes on it being legalized under the guise of it being an antidepressant drug. Perhaps it should be legalized under the guise of, let's just legalize all drugs, which is that Carl Hart tip. 
so that's how I feel about Australia. I think it's a little bit premature, but it's happening. So what are you going to do? It's happening, man. You know, 99.9% .9 of people do psychedelics or have done psychedelics outside of a clinical medicalized framework. And I think that's so important to recognize that the current framework, the current narrative that's being rolled out is that psychedelics need to be used to address mental health issues, as you've discussed. But in reality, to me, that's a very reductionist and bottlenecked view of their potential. Like the, for me, when I first got into mushrooms, it was about exploring my creativity. It was about learning, you know, what are the limits of my imagination? And the way that I frame my first macrodose mushroom experience was that it blew the roof off my imagination. And, you know, I think traditionally, like, instead of going the research and science route, I went the culture route. I started a band, played in bands, you know, got a film minor, a media degree, and psychedelics was a huge part of that. And so many people were tapping into that. And that was perfectly valid. And, you know, you think of some of the greatest artists of all time, and like, there's usually some kind of psychoactive component to the work, be it Van Gogh, or be it, you know, the Beatles, or, or any number of people, uh, George Carlin, et cetera, et cetera, on through modern day culture. So I just think that as we move forward with the mainstreaming of psychedelics, we can never lose sight of the immense possibilities of this incredibly dynamic experience and not just bottleneck it into a rigidly controlled, medicalized access route. And that's actually a conversation that I saw Rick Doblin and Christian Engermeyer have face-to-face -face at Psychedelic Science. They were on stage. And Christian Engermeyer, of course, was advocating for strict control and medicalization. And believe it or not, Doblin was taking the other approach, saying, well, we need to make it more community-based. So it's just something that I think you know, as we're discussing right now, a lot of these conversations are still open-ended. There's, you know, they're unsettled, they're unfinished, they're open-ended inquiries. And I think that seeing the legalization under the guise of it's a medicalized treatment for something, that's just one piece of this much, you know, more broader and comprehensive and connected framework. And so I applaud you for diving into that. And I'll do my best to continue being a champion of cognitive liberty and to sing it from the mountaintops because... I don't feel like, you know, I never had a mental illness, quote unquote, when I first got into psychedelics and they still changed my life and they were still awesome. And I, you know, still am on a path that, that, that was started from 17 or 18 years old, trying to figure out why this little handful of, you know, cracker dry mushrooms sent me on this visionary quest where I'm seeing hieroglyphics and seeing, you know, having these intense ephemeral spiritual, if you want to call it that, or cathartic experiences and like what's happening. So Kudos to you. All right, this, this ties nicely into the next thing I want to talk about, which is microdosing. And people who follow my work are familiar that I like to belittle microdosing. I like to critique and I poke fun at it. I have a lot of friends who have microdosing companies and a lot of people swear that microdosing works for them and I would never take that away from them. Like if it works for someone, great. But also, I'm quite skeptical of it because I think that that's a drastic oversimplification too. I feel like that is the elephant in the room, that if we just treat psychedelics as microdoses that make you just a little bit better of a cog of the machine, if you will, a little bit better, you know, at your day-to-day -day routines. I question how that's actually different than an SSRI or something like that, if you're using it in that way. And of course, I'm open to debate here, but I would love to hear your perspective. You know, it seems that the science on microdosing is really up in the air and probably actually indicating that it's maybe mostly placebo. And it's not just you and I who are saying that, it's also people like Imran Khan from UC Berkeley Center for Psychedelics, David Erizzo, and you know, that whole study over there. So what's your take on microdosing today? Yeah, man. Uh, so when I was at the conference, uh, I actually uh, sat in for a uh, presentation between uh, two of my friends, actually. Uh, Balas from Imperial. Shout out to Balas from Imperial. That's definitely the homie. And Aline Hazian from my department. And Aline, uh, she's a researcher, a, fant a fantastic researcher, a fantastic researcher, but she's actually looking at microdosing when it comes to ADHD. And then of course, Balaz is the guy that published the biggest academic research on psychedelics in history, where he essentially got, I think almost 200 people. He gave them either a microdose amount of uh, LSD or psilocybin or placebo. And he found that people reported that they were doing good as effective on the you know, LSD as placebo or as effective on the psilocybin as placebo. Of course, these, uh, these amounts were very, very low, microdose amounts. 
So he basically said, look, this, is, this works as effective as placebo. Fantastic research from Imperial. Uh, but Aline from my department found that actually when a person has a microdose amount of LSD, it actually helps with ADHD. Now, she has even said multiple times, multiple times that in actuality, it could be the placebo effect at hand. It could be the actual ritual of taking something can help a person, you know, solve their ADHD, or it could be the belief that taking anything will help, will actually help a person's ADHD. And of course, right now, you hear people, you can't go, you, you can't go on any sort of website or any TV, pro, uh, uh, you know, cast or podcast where you don't hear about the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. They're everywhere. My parents are like sending me NPR bits about, you know, the therapeutic effects. So if you're in a study and you are taking LSD because you have ADHD and you've heard that LSD can help with ADHD, then you will believe that you will do better because you've heard that you will be doing better. Now, when I say that, people are like, oh, well, it's just BS. It's just BS. Okay. It's, don't be that reduction. Don't reduce it down to that. In actuality, it shows you the power of, our, of thought, the power that we have over our own reality. I mean, just think about this. If you were taking something that is just, you know, a blank pill, a, a placebo, right? And you take it under the belief that it will help your back pain or it will help your anxiety. And you take it and then you actually experience a reduction of anxiety or even crazier, a reduction of back pain. That tells you that just the power of thought has the ability to cause cascades from your brain all the way to your body to physically change your body or to actually change your brain or to actually shift your perspective. That right there is almost, it's, it's as incredible as taking um, DMT and seeing aliens. It's, it's so incredible that the power of thought that we, that, we have, we all have actual power over our physical bodies just by thought. So that's incredible. Now, going deeper into what you said about microdosing and how that looks when it comes to psychedelic science. So, man, it's, it's, it's so crazy because there's so many different angles. The angle that you're talking about is right now, so many different companies out there are trying to take the psychedelic out of psychedelics. And the reason why is because if you could take, if you could have a product to show to the you know, FDA and you're saying this does not cause hallucinations and that's a huge boost in you selling whatever you want to sell and to get it through and yada, 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 clinical trials and all this stuff, you know? Boom, cash in your pocket. It, it looks good. You know, it looks good. It looks, it looks green. But there's also a belief that perhaps the actual, the actual subjective experience of an actual trip, the actual trip itself, the trip itself could actually have beneficial properties. Experiencing a different perspective can also shift your brain into cause spinogenesis and uh, neurogenesis and all this stuff. Just a, a perspective shift. So, of course, if you're microdosing LSD, you're not going to have that perspective shift. You're not going to have this alteration of reality. You're just going to sort of be doing this every single day and live your life under the belief that you're getting better, but still under the belief that you're getting better will actually help you get better. So it's really difficult to thread this very fine point in showing that microdosing can help a person get better. Because what it seems like is the power of thought 
is greater almost in the power of the psychedelic uh, psychopharmacological effects of psychedelics when it comes to the therapeutic effects. So I advise that, I mean, and also there's a very snake oil aspect to this too, Dennis. I got to tell you, man, there's a lot of people out there that call themselves microdosing coaches that are selling snake oil, that are saying that it can help with all these different things. It could help with relationships. It could help with, you know, creativity. Look, we don't have any evidence that shows a microdose amount of psychedelics could help with creativity or cognition or anxiety. We do not have that evidence. We do not have that evidence. I'm putting this out there right now. We do not have that evidence. Any person out there that tells you Microdosing psychedelics helps with, you know, this laundry list of things that people have. That's BS. That's a way for a person to take out their, you know, credit card and swipe it and give them money. We don't have evidence of that. But we do have evidence that under a big dose of psychedelics, certain things happen that relate to antidepressant effects, that relate to a reduction of anxiety and these effects these effects are persistent they last for days weeks months longer after the first trip maybe even longer than that we don't have data that shows that maybe it lasts like longer than, than that but still Dennis this is only from an actual dose of psychedelics you will not have this with a Microdose amount of psilocybin, despite who you paid a thousand bucks to coach you on microdosing. Yeah, I mean, it makes for low hanging fruit for satire for sure. You know, I think one of the phenomenons that I've been studying is this idea of the overnight authority, right? And I think that, especially with the social media landscape and speaking as an American or someone from the United States, there's this sense of needing to be a thought leader, needing to stand out, needing to prove yourself. And you know, as with many other industries, like with something like crypto or cannabis, et cetera, which we're seeing a lot of people pivot from those spaces into psychedelics, uh, you know, there's this sense of uh, I need to promote myself. I need to get in. I need to be a part of this. I want a piece of the pie. And then that takes precedence a lot of the time over any of the actual you know, research. And I'm an advocate for like, let's see what happens over a long period of time. You know, right now we have a bunch of people and a bunch of different stakeholders and interests who are essentially saying, I just got into this three years ago. And now because I did this course or whatever, I'm qualified to advise you and to bring people into my orbit. And yeah, I would just exercise extreme caution around that. And I speak from the experience of someone who was a very kind of like evangelist for psychedelics are going to save the world. And I'm very grateful. I didn't have social media or a platform back at that point because that was, you know, when I was 18 to 24 years old or so. And then I realized, wow, there's still so many social determinants. There's still so many issues, you know, with our society and the way it's structured that this idea that everybody's going to take psychedelics and we're going to solve all the problems. Well, it might shake things up a little bit, that's for sure. But, you know, there's still a lot of things that we need to address that don't really even come under the purview of psychedelics. And I've been an advocate for this idea that I think universal basic universal basic income would probably do better for more people in mental health than giving a bunch of psychedelics out. And, you know, I've lived in, in um, very marginalized areas before, you know, and, and spent time in Oakland and things like that. And you start to see, okay, maybe the community can help psychedelics can be a catalyst, but there's still so many other factors that need to be addressed. So I, I, I you know, want to just caution people, give it time, you know, play the slow game. So that's my advice right there. Like it's worth it. Play the slow game. You don't have to jump into conclusions. You don't have to conflate this like sense of immediacy and instant gratification that we're so accustomed to. We don't have to transfer that over to the psychedelic landscape. Like it can be a totally different thing that we explore. So that, that's my little take on that. Now, you know, on this Carl Hart tip, which I'm a big fan of his as well, and there's so many different substances, obviously. Right now, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, those are kind of taking the lion's share of attention and research and things like that. But there's also kind of these pariah substances or pariah molecules that like nobody wants to talk about. And like opiates are one of those, right? Or like Carl Hart talking about using heroin recreationally, essentially. And one of the things you've written about that I'm fascinated about is PCP. 
Because talk about something that's loaded with cultural baggage, right? The quintessential dare educational fear-mongering molecule where, you know, you, you take PCP and then you eat your roommate and cut your dick off or something like that. Just some you know, craziest stuff. And like, this is the kind of stuff that gets trotted out there. But there's also been some, you know, potential therapeutic value to it. And maybe it's gone unstudied. I know Psychedelics Today has done a little bit of research into this or content at one point. A very close friend of mine who's an esteemed chemist and very well known recently told me that he took PCP once and, you know, he, he did not particularly enjoy the effects, but he had an experience nonetheless and his brain is intact and he's fine, et cetera, et cetera. What is your research into PCP looking like? Because I know you've written about this. Is this a molecule that will ever see the light of day? Is it going to be swept under the rug indefinitely? What's the, what's the take on this? Fincyclidine, PCP. Fincyclidine, yeah, so PCP, man, I mean, just saying the term PCP, you know, like, you always say things like, yeah, this is football, but on PCP, you know, that's always a sort of um, aggregator, it's like, it's intense, you know, that's just a cultural thing that we have, like, this game is like uh, Halo, but on PCP, and so if we, and, and that, that's so, that's so culturally instilled in us, that PCP is this like very X factor um, aggregate that can be added on things to make things crazy, you know? But in actuality, fencyclidine, it's an NMDA antagonist. Uh, it looks like it operates like ketamine, which is the only legalized psychedelic really that's out there, you know? Which is interesting that you have one that's, in their, they appear to be functionally the same. Uh, both NMDA antagonists, both affect uh, relatively the same parts of the brain, and they both have the same, you know, receptor profiles, basically. So, but one is, you know, uh, owned by Johnson & Johnson, basically, as, uh, you know, uh, what's it called, uh, Spravato, and the other is this very, you know, uh, demonized uh, substance. But in actuality, I think that will we see a surge of PCP on the psychedelic landscape? I mean, if we do see a surge of like PCP research or PCP, uh, you know, companies looking towards PCP to to help with people's you know problems, then I think that would be the final stage of psychedelic legalization uh, when we have like you know CNN talking about the benefits of PCP. That'll be great, you know. Um, and, and honestly, if I were some company or some business out there that's looking to get into making a compound, I would look towards PCP because right now Johnson & Johnson has um, Spravato, ketamine, all the enantiomers of that. Maybe you want to look into PCP and what fencyclidine can actually do uh, and what sort of compounds you could build off fencyclidine. It doesn't, it, and the fact that they work function, you know, it works functionally the same as ketamine could show a business that, hey, we should probably hop on this PCP bandwagon or actually pioneer this PCP landscape. But let me go a little bit deeper and sort of go away from psychedelics, go towards other things like amphetamines, methamphetamines. Um, so yeah, Carl Hart, man, the guy is a like legendary figure. I saw him briefly at Psychedelic Science but, I mean, you just see people and you don't want to, like, pull them and say, hey, I want to talk to you, you know, because that's ridiculous. So it's I didn't have the time to sort of catch him by himself and talk to him. But I would tell him uh, that he's doing fantastic work. But, you know, we, in psychedelic science, we get so wrapped up in spinogenesis and um, neurogenesis and plasticity and neuroplasticity. That's, that's these terms that sort of talk about the restructuralization of brain cells and how psychedelics can help with the, you know, the, the sort of reformation of brain cells, the strengthening of dendritic, like all this stuff, you know? But what, know, like what else actually does that is crystal. Methamphetamine actually has properties like, you know, the formation of brain cells or the strengthening of brain cells. Like that happens too. But we don't really talk about that because we don't understand why that is. And we don't, we honestly, we don't even understand if neuroplasticity is a thing that's good or not. We don't really understand that. We, we hear about it in all these, you know, people and their, you know, YouTube videos and stuff. Neuroplasticity of psychedelics is good. It's good. We don't really understand if that's good or not. We, we don't. It just happens 
and it sounds cool having brain cells reform and restructurals, you know, but perhaps maybe that isn't good. We don't know. But if we have the same mechanics happening with like crystal meth, is it that crystal meth has therapeutic properties too? And if that's the case, then maybe these, you know, venture capitalists should stop messing with ketamine infusion uh, clinics and open up a meth lab or something, you know, like if, if that's the case. So it shows you that the drug science research field is very, it's very early. It's very early. The fact that we're researching psychedelics is fantastic, but we should do things like research cocaine, which we've done in our lab in Master University because we can, we have this like freedom to like research things like cocaine and research things like, you know, psychedelics for um, creativity where you can't really do that anywhere else. But we should focus on other substances like PCP, like cocaine, like methamphetamine, like what's happening there? Like, can we pull out the cultural stigma from these substances and see what's really behind them? Because maybe there's some good stuff behind them. And maybe it seems like historically, whenever, you know, culture tells us something is bad, usually there's something behind that that isn't factually accurate. Venture capitalists opening a meth lab is probably my next satire piece that's like made to order right there. So thanks for that. And I agree with you. I mean, LSD has so much cultural baggage and now it's being rolled out and promoted. Yeah, I think that the cultural baggage is a huge part. And I'm a big advocate of education before regulation. And right now what we're seeing is like this immense black market and gray market in the U.S. Technically, it's all a black market, but we'll call it the gray market with things like mushrooms and you know, I've had this conversation with a number of what I would call corporadelic executives about people who want to see regulation. And in some cases, they condemn this gray market or black market, but regulators just kind of waffle around and take their time. And, you know, there's so many people, so many claims out there, so much hype about what these substances can do. And people just want them, you know, most people can't afford to go to Jamaica or go to, you know, the Netherlands or whatever to go on a retreat. So it's just really interesting that it seems to be permitted right now. Like in, in Lake Merritt, Oakland, you go there on the weekend and people have tables set up where they're selling ounces or pounds of mushrooms. And I've been to conferences and events where people, vendors are openly selling, not even in decriminalized cities. So it's like a really interesting time right now. And I'm very curious to see like if and when these regulations get introduced or if it just continues to be sort of this free for all where anybody can enter the market and there's all kinds of misinformation floating around too. And like, you know, even trap chocolates, things like research chemicals that are being packaged as mushroom chocolates. So I'm a big advocate for education, for knowing your grower or growing yourself, things like that. You know, you can eliminate a lot of risk. And even so there's, you know, been a tremendous amount of people consuming these things with not a tremendous amount of reported um, adverse incidents, to be honest, although they certainly do happen. And I never want to overlook that. I think it's worthwhile to talk about them. There's people doing great work there. So uh, one question I wanted to dive into, I've only got two or three more for you today, is about the difference in education between Europe and the United States. Because you're over there as a PhD candidate. I've had friends get their PhDs in Europe. You know, I have an undergrad degree and I was motivated to go get a graduate degree, but a big deterrent in the US is the cost. It's flat out, you know? I feel like I could definitely contribute to the academic landscape and my chosen field or whatever, but like thinking about taking out 50 or 100 or whatever it costs for whatever program as a loan is really unappealing for a lot of reasons. So that's something I think in Europe they do really well. It's like education is more affordable and accessible. Is this something that if you were a young person, you know, talking to someone who's in their undergrad right now, that going to study psychedelics in Europe specifically or at the University of Maastricht, is this a legitimate route for a lot of people that you think more people should consider exploring? Yeah, man, no, great question. So let's say you are a uh, undergrad student somewhere in America, Florida State University, University of Arizona, and you have an interest in psychology, you're, you're sort of a BA in uh, psychology, you're, folk, you're probably gonna graduate in the next two or three years, but you want to pursue a graduate and eventually a PhD in psychedelics. Now, I want to tell you that the planet is a big place. You know, perhaps this, perhaps people have only experienced America or have only experienced Arizona. And I want people to understand that 
this planet that we all inhabit and we've all sort of stayed here for a pretty long time, it's a giant place. And I think that if, if you want to actually conduct academic research in psychedelics, then yes, Maastricht University, I believe, is the best place for it. And the reason why is because we have so much freedom here. So much freedom to conduct research, but it's not easy. Like I work with like Kim Coopers, Jan Raymakers, uh, like every single day, like some of the top people. And I work with Bettina Sorger, who's like one of the top uh, imaging, brain imaging uh, specialists out there. She's from like uh, Frankfurt, um, Germany. And, you know, I can't like don't even try to slide any BS to any person that's Dutch or um, German, it's just not going to work. You got to be on your stuff 100%. You got to understand what you're doing. So people perhaps have the passion for psychedelics and they believe that, that that passion can get them towards the PhD and perhaps it can. You know, there has to be passion there. But you have to understand that it isn't easy and this is not a temporary thing. It's very difficult. Like, it's one of the, it's honestly like looking at the brain and how the brain's affected by like LSD it's very difficult it's not easy it is hard you get data and you want to cry because you're like I can't understand this what's happening it's difficult there's people like Parker Singleton that's doing computational science and he's doing equations and breaking down the flow of blood in the brain and the averages in certain areas and time durations. So there's a lot of things to look at when you look at the brain under psychedelics. We don't understand how it completely works because it is difficult. It's hard. So if you're up for the challenge of being frustrated every single day, but then you wake up with the passion of, you know what, I'm going to go right back in there and try to figure out what's happening, or I'm going to go right back in there and I'm going to look at this data and I'm going to break it down with a different formula or a different, you know, PSA or something. You like, it's, if you have the passion to solve the puzzle and if you have the patience to be disappointed day in, day out until you have this glimmer of hope or this glimmer of data and then you expound on that and this data can actually become something bigger it could become something like intracellular activity with 5-HC receptors it could become like the flattening of the brain energy landscape it it, it, it could become the chordal striatal thalamic uh, cortical um, um, theory there's so many things that can happen but it is difficult. It's not easy. And if a person is up for that challenge, then I, I will tell them, come out here and let's do some research in Holland at Master University. Epic. You know, that freedom component is so huge. What are some of the underrepresented focus areas of psychedelic research that you'd like to see more scientific inquiry into over the next few years? Number one, the one thing that we have zero data on and it is so fascinating it's so mysterious is if we if the entire community could have research on salvia divinorum you know salvia divinorum if you haven't heard of salvia divinorum it's a it's a, a green plant that you put in a pipe or you put in a dab rig and you take a hit of it and you have a very DMT-esque experience. Your entire field of vision gets wiped away and replaced with something that is completely alien to you. You have things like the feeling of flight or falling or being pulled. You see things speed across your field of vision. At this, at, in, in such a fast way that you get confused. You see things expand out and, and, go, t and, and go small again. You, you, have, you see things that you won't ever see again. And as far as psychedelic science, where, when it comes to psychopharmacology, neuroscience, we have zero clinical research of salvia divinorum and it's interesting because out of all 
psychedelics that we have, most of them are like serotonin uh, um, uh, agonists. Some are NMDA antagonists like ketamine and uh, PCP. But sabidivinorum is a kappa opioid agonist, which could be the only kappa opioid um, agonist that we have in the entire field of psychedelics. And it has very similar properties when it comes to visual expansion, visual distortions as DMT. So what's happening there? What is going on there? We don't, I can't tell you because we haven't done any research on it. And the reason why is because psychedelic, the field of psychedelic science is very wide open. And as I mentioned earlier, it is difficult. Like, yeah, it's psychedelic science, but it's freaking brain science, bro. This is brain science is not easy. And yeah, psychedelics are fun. Taking LSD on a Friday night, yeah. But it's still brain science. And it's brain science when your brain is on psychedelics. So it's even wilder, you know? Um, but salvia divinorum is the, the, the single substance that I would love to see more research on. Um, and if anyone out there is looking for a pathway into getting their, you know, academic, uh, sort of, um, uh, pursuing a, um, academic pursuit of psychedelics, salvia divinorum would be a fantastic way to get into this very distinct field. Also, and there's a, there's a, a um, second one that, that, uh, that I really wanted to focus on. The idea of psychedelics having this gastrointestinal effect. So we always talk about, you know, serotonin receptors in the brain. You hear about it all the time, 5-HT receptors, serotonin receptors, all this stuff, you know, in the brain, thalamus, visual cortex, cortical areas. But in actuality, 95% of our serotonin receptors in our body are actually in our gut. They're right here. Only 5% is in the brain. So it's interesting that when we take things like psilocybin, even like, you know, 2CB, LSD, you have a very gastrointestinal effect. Sometimes you get sick, you get queasy. If you take um, ayahuasca, you puke, you know, there's all this stuff, you purge. But there's something happening there in the gut that we don't fully understand. And we don't have the science, we, we, don't, we don't have any sort of research to understand it. So perhaps we should expand the field of psychedelic science from you know, psychologists and pharmacologists and um, neuroscientists to maybe gastrointestinal scientists. Totally, there's a couple things there I'd like to unpack. One of them is that part of my comedy routines I do when I'm emceeing or doing stand-up involves salvia. And just how absolutely absurd it is that we could buy that at gas stations when I was in high school. Like everything else was illegal, but I'd roll up with the boys with like, let us get a couple Monster Energy drinks, some Slim Jims, and some super potent entheogens to go get zooted on. And like that was my entree into the world of salvia. And you know, it's, it's fascinating because you have even these things like 5X or 50X or 120X. It's like, what does that actually mean? No one explains it to you. They're just like, do you want just like a really strong salvia trip? And the first time I ever smoked salvia, I don't know how this happened. There's gotta be some inquiry into it. I broke two chairs by sitting in them. But I remember like hitting it and sitting in this chair and then just the chair collapsing and people being like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't I didn't do anything differently. I think maybe I just have a lot more gravity to me right now. You know, there's that feeling that people will describe with salvia of like you feel really heavy and weighed down. So maybe there's something to that, but just an aside. So uh, I don't think you could buy it as readily anymore. It used to be ubiquitously available in my neighborhood, but I don't recall seeing it at the gas station the last few times I went. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting that you said that when you took salvia for the first time, you broke two chairs because the first time I gave it to my friend, he broke my sofa somehow. He like sat on my sofa and he cracked it in half. I'm like, bro, how did he even do that? You know? Um, so there's this sort of destructive element of salvia, but it's, it's more, it's something that we should really research. You know, the fact that we have intense visual trips on it is, is unexplainable. Well, and so two other things that just came back to me. One is I believe it's known as salvia divinorum and that in traditional cultures, like in Mexico, where I spend a lot of time, one of the principal uses was divination, which again is a very like ambiguous abstract concept when you try to 
you know, fit it into the scientific canon, but that is one of the uses that people will ascribe to it, is it's for divining, for seeing things in the future. So that's a whole other level of research and rabbit hole we could go down, which is fascinating. And then the other angle there, because I am fascinated with a lot of indigenous and traditional use cases and like the research that's been done for many generations is the the diet the importance of diet like in a shamanic worldview and like when someone's apprenticing to serve ayahuasca or to be an ayahuascaro or a curandero diet is such a huge part of that and like which foods you can eat and which foods you should omit from the diet and things like that so now the research coming out talking about the gastrointestinal tract right and the various MAOI inhibitors and whatnot, like there's really something to that. And again, that comes back to education, I think, where uh, it's really important that we know, okay, how can you have the best possible experience? And maybe a big part of that is like having a good diet, right? Which I'm, I love to eat. I'm a foodie, so I can't say that I'm out there, you know, fasting every single time. But it is, is really interesting to start looking, you know, into the more scientific angles. And that's one of for my money, one of the coolest things happening right now is the sort of bridging between modern scientific inquiry and analysis and indigenous wisdom. And I see that firsthand working with mycologists in Mexico, like in Chiapas, and going to indigenous communities, and they have you know Maya names for different mushrooms, and they have ethnomycological uses and things that they use it for. And then I also work with uh, university educated mycologists who are looking at the phylogeny and the taxonomy and like looking at it under a microscope and there's something really incredible about seeing these two worlds bridge right now so okay last question for you today Zeus Tapato neuroscientist and psychedelic researcher extraordinaire uh, what's coming next over the next year you know you, you shed a little bit of light on the DMT research you're doing I know that you're hard at work there at Maastricht University. You're pulling on your 2CB vape pen in between you know, research papers, but what's coming next for you over the next year? <laughs> no, man. Uh, so yeah, shout, first off, shout out to everybody that I work with. Kip Cooper, Jean Rainmakers, Bettina Sorger, Pablo, Mauro, Johannes, Aline, Natasha. I'm leaving people out. I apologize. Lily. Uh, everyone that I work with, shout out to all the homies and other uh, universities, Imperial, shout out to uh, Chris, Balaz, um, all those guys out there, uh, Tommaso. Uh, but yeah, so what is happening next? So I'll give you a sort of rundown on what I'm doing. So actually, last Friday, um, I, was, I had the opportunity to show a prototype of this VR experience. Um, VR, yeah, let's just call it a VR experience that I created for people to uh, experience while under DMT. Uh, it's a prototype, um, and uh, it looks pretty good. I had Kim, and I had Jan, and I had Bettina uh, using the HTC Elite XR headset. Shout out to HTC uh, for, putting, uh, for putting us on their own Instagram. Uh, I, ho I hope HTC can come back and, and fund and give us some funding and some of that good HTC money, but... Uh, I, I do want to say that um, right now, the VR experience that we're working on is coming out very nicely. Right now, we're doing the DMT survey. The DMT survey is very interesting because we're trying to assess certain visual components, visual aspects that people have under an actual DMT experience. And the fantastic thing about this research that we're doing is that people can actually quantify if something happened in the beginning, the peak or towards the end of the experience. They could give a temporal breakdown of where these visual disturbances or visual aspects happen, which is very important. Uh, that's gonna build, that's gonna go into other research that we're working on. But I do have a paper. I wanna really hype this paper up. It's coming out very soon. I mentioned that there's three theories about how psychedelics affects the brain and how psychedelics gives us this visual perspective, how it changes our perspective, right? Then they're fan to their uh, menage um, doses, uh, CCC theory, there's Catherine Preeler's CSTC theory, and there's uh, Robert Howard Harris's Rebus theory. Three solid theories, they all have some great pros. Uh, but come September, I'm introducing. A fourth theory that actually applies to all these theories. It works with all these theories. And that's dropping 
in September, and I'm putting the final touches on it right now. I believe that when it drops, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to show the world that perhaps we're looking at we should look at something else. That's all I'm going to say. We should, we should be looking at something else as to why we have these very demanding perceptual experiences under psychedelics. So that's coming up pretty soon. I'll be writing a second paper on the idea of incorporating VR in psychedelics. And then a third paper on some other topic I can't talk about because I don't want to ruin it. And psychedelic or and perceptual alterations another thing so that's three papers the third one's going to come out probably in december i know i, I know i'm teasing a lot we're going to run a study uh in vr uh, in about a month or so maybe two months we're going to do a third study come early 2024 we're going to be incorporating dmt and then a fifth study in uh, mid 2024 we're going to be incorporating lsd and something else and man, I, I, I'm telling you, man, it's the future is looking bright when it comes to perceptual science. And when it comes to the perceptual understanding of psychedelics, the future is looking bright because I am ensuring that this future will be bright because I am in, I'm investigating what we all want to understand, which is why are we even tripping at all? My man Zeus living up to his larger than life name and reputation. Thank you very much for joining us on the Micropreneur Podcast today. And thanks for leaving us with a cliffhanger so we can all look forward to the next couple of months and to this paper that's coming out. Uh, I really appreciate your body of work, and it's been an honor to host you on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Much love. And keep on doing what you're doing. You give a fantastic way for people to talk about psychedelics. Yeah, you, you have this um, comedy aspect to you, but I love how you control a conversation and you get a person to talk about what they're passionate about. So that's a very uh, interesting talent that not a lot of people have, I gotta tell you. Not a lot of people have this, but you have it, dude. So I think you're gonna go very, very far, even farther than what you think you're going. Thanks, homie. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode, and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on at micopreneur podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the micopreneur podcast.